Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, we're going to start a new series this school year. We're going to survey the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi in the school year. So from September to May, we're going to see some of the highlights that show us this entire story and how God moves in redemption through the Old Testament, a place in our Bibles that is unfamiliar to some of us. You've heard Genesis chapter 1 read to you, so I'm just going to read the first two verses for us this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God of creation, Just as you stood over all that was formless and void, so you today stand over the chaos of sin and of death. You created the world, you recreate us in Christ as we aim for this new heavens and this new earth. Show us these things, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. The opening line of the Bible, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, man. You get that opening line of the Bible confused and you have fumbled the story of the Old Testament right after the gate. You can't recover if you do not see this here. The Bible places God at the beginning, at the end, at the center of every scene, every shift, every advance, every inbreaking of God's kingdom on earth as it is perfectly and gloriously in heaven. But meanwhile, American religiosity and spirituality and even huge chunks of the American church is fascinated with its own experiment to place man and not God at the beginning. In the beginning, man was unfulfilled. In the beginning, man was dissatisfied. In the beginning, man was restless. Or worst of all, in the beginning, man was bored, the story goes. And then God came along to fulfill man, satisfy man, entertain man, and God and man lived happily ever after. When your biology 101 professor shames you by saying that you only follow the Christian religion as a crutch, he's thinking that that's all your faith is. He has seen some unregenerate church attender go and worship on Sunday and then live a life that looks exactly like the rest of the world and only speak of God in a pinch when he is in trouble and that's what he thinks that your faith is. No wonder he shames you in that way, but he has it wrong. God is not a crutch and you won't find him as a crutch here in Genesis chapter 1 or anywhere for that matter. He exists before the beginning. He stands outside of space and time and the material world. We are introduced to him holding sway over all that is formless and void. And then we meet a God who can speak atoms and elements and stars and planets and life 
into being by the word of his power. He is not a crutch who will get me out of a pinch. He is a God who deserves all glory and honor and power. And either I will bend the knee now to him in worship, or he will bend it for me on that last and great and terrifying day of judgment. In the beginning, God. Let that line set the tone of the testament for us today. I want to see just three brief things about creation from a very, very dense chapter. I want to talk about order. I want to talk about beauty. And I want to talk about intentionality in creation. Order, beauty, intentionality. Look at the order that's found woven into the fabric of creation. You have boundaries, you have seasons, you have order that reflect who God is. So three times in our passage, God separates the elements. He separates light from darkness, and he separates heaven from earth, and he separates land from water. We don't now dwell in the dimly lit cork soup of a proto-galaxy. We stand today on dry land, in broad daylight, under heaven, because God is a God of order. Nine times in our passage, God creates this whole family of new life and then repeats that it is made according to their kinds. Vegetation, plants, trees, fish, birds, beasts, livestock, creeping things. We know that elephants don't give birth to camels. We know that peach trees, they don't produce okra. We might take that for granted. We might think that that's all the world could have ever been, but we are banking our lives consciously or unconsciously on the fact that our God is a God of order. He makes this universe within time. He creates the world in six days. He rests on the seventh. And this seven-day week then becomes, verse 14, for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. You settle into the cadence of Genesis chapter 1. There was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day and the third day and the fourth day. So that after the flood in Genesis chapter 8, God can promise humanity through Noah, while the earth remains... Sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God has made all things perfectly in order. Now, I know that the order of creation is a little abstract, but the reason I think it's so important to highlight in Genesis chapter 1 is because it flies in the face of every other account of how we landed on this spinning rock halfway out of the Milky Way in a small supercluster of galaxies. That's like the most important question anybody could know. Who am I? How did I get here? And what am I doing? And the Bible presents an answer that nobody else says. The accounts that were written at the time of Genesis were telling us that the way we got our world was a conflict of the gods. They were fighting with one another and the earth was produced in the middle of that battle. 
Or you get to Epicurus in the 4th century BC and he would have told you that, that he thinks creation comes from two atoms colliding and then you have this random creation before us. And at the same time he was saying that the Chinese Taoists would have been explaining to us the creation based on the yin and the yang. But today all of that has fallen out of fashion, including the Bible, and we're putting our existential eggs in the basket of modern science, which is confident that given enough time and enough space and enough speed and enough temperature and enough ingredients that came from Hawking's nose where, we have a purely material world that has a perfectly reasonable explanation that we will publish as soon as we find it. You'll be the first to know. The grass withers. The flowers fade. Philosophers die and are buried. Hypotheses are overturned. And the word stands as this witness generation after generation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's a God of order. His fingerprints are all over this thing. But not only is he a God of order, he's a God of beauty. You get this refrain throughout this entire chapter. When God makes something, he looks at it and he says, this is good. Every day, every aspect of creation, this is good, this is good, this is good. This past weekend, Evan and I and some others were at a conference in Chattanooga. It was put on by minority leaders in our denomination. And while we were there, I heard one of the best lectures that I have heard in my entire life. Not best lectures on diversity, like best lectures, period. And as soon as we get the recording, we're going to put it in the church email for you. But the speaker, Erwin Ince, made the phenomenal points that when God says good in Genesis chapter 1, he doesn't just mean useful, he means beautiful. That encompasses both of those things. He's not just talking about its utility, but its beauty. It's something that we can use, but it's also something that we can enjoy. We've said this before, but when the sun rises in the morning, we see the thing and we think this is useful. This is going to keep me alive today. But daggum, this thing is beautiful. It's like way prettier than it needs to be. It's a delight to the senses because that's how God creates good things. They're useful and they're beautiful. The reason I think that Ince's point of good as useful and beautiful is so important is because it can free believers to enjoy the physical world that God has made. I think we have a little bit of a complex as believers when it comes to our relationship with the physical, material, created world. We don't don't know exactly what we're supposed to do with this thing and how we're supposed to enjoy this thing because some of us have been taught that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it was good and it was beautiful, but in Genesis chapter 3, man fell and sin entered the world and ever since then, this has been a very dangerous place. 
It's full of sin and it's full of temptation. It's full of disasters and it's full of distractions. And the more that we can take our eyes off of this created world and onto the spiritual and the eternal, the better off we'll be and the quicker that God will come and burn this thing and create the new heavens and the new earth. We might not be able to say that in quite that way, but we feel that. And it's come to us through a bunch of half-truths. It is true that God made the world in a certain way, and when sin entered the world, creation was fractured. And now we have terrifying and haunting things like the hurricane that hit the Bahamas that were not intended in God's creation. That's true. And it's true that this is not our lasting and our permanent home. We join the hall of faith of Hebrews chapter 11 that says we're looking to an eternal city, the new Jerusalem to which we are all going and staking our claim. All of those things are true. And yet as you read the Bible, especially as you read the Old Testament, you will find that God is proud of his post-fall creation. He loves his creation. He teaches us about himself through his creation. He provides his creation for us to enjoy as an act of worship. That's everywhere in our Old Testaments. Think about the book of Job. You know the story of Job. Job suffered. He asks God why he is suffering. God comes to him and doesn't even answer Job's question of why he suffers. Instead, he delivers a four-chapter smackdown of a sermon that is only about his creation. Job, I hear you asking those questions, but let me ask you some questions. Where were you when I set the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I divided the seas from the land to make dry land? Where were you when I separated light from darkness? Creation, creation, creation. Look at this post-fall creation and be in awe of me. It's in Job. It's everywhere in the psalm. Think about the Psalms that delight in the physical world. I think of David in Psalm chapter 8 when he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, that is when I stand after Genesis chapter 3 and look at this fallen world, I think majesty. How majestic is your name in all the earth. That's what your creation says to me. Proverbs Agur saying in Proverbs chapter 30, have you seen an eagle flying? Have you seen a snake on the rock? These things are too wonderful for me to comprehend. Song of Solomon. Sex. This is awesome. This is beautiful. This is physical. This is in the material world. God, how are you creating heaven that is better than your first round of creation on earth? God loves his creation. God sets the physical world out as a banquet table to enjoy in his name. Don't miss that. Don't try to be more spiritual than God and only think about spiritual, ethereal things and not the things that God has placed right in front of you to enjoy that are useful and beautiful. Don't be that Christian who sees the sunrise and says, good, this is useful. 
God turned on the lights and now I can read my Bible. Don't be that Christian. Don't be that Christian who enjoys intimacy with his spouse or her spouse and says, good, this is useful. God gave me this to procreate. Don't do that. Don't enjoy a Labor Day cookout and the food that God provides for you and say, this is good. God is giving me calories. Now I'm going to be sustained to do more ministry. That's not the act of worship that's intended there. You pick up a Labor Day hot dog and you say, I don't know if this was part of the creation or the fall. (laughs) But God, this is good. (laughs) This is like really good. And I love it. And it didn't have to be this way. You can give me calories without great tasting food. And I love you for it. You're a God of use and beauty. And what a world that you have made. That's a believer living in the post-fall created world. God's creation is beautiful. It's orderly. It is good, which means it's useful and it's beautiful. And finally, God's creation is intention. He has a very specific thing in mind, purpose in mind, when he made this world. In the year AD 50, the Apostle Paul, he lands in the cradle of Western civilization, which is Athens, Greece. You think sharing the gospel is hard in Colombia? Try Athens 2,000 years ago. That was a tough place to preach the gospel. That is the hometown of Socrates and Plato. It's the adopted city of Aristotle. It's a city that's steeped in Greek mythology. It's a city that grows up training itself how to debate and argue. It's a city that has roughly zero exposure to God in Scripture or his risen and reigning Christ. In fact, in a lot of ways, Athens two years, thousand years ago doesn't sound unlike Columbia as she stands today. Where does Paul go to answer the deepest questions on the heart of every humanity for a people that have not read a single word of Scripture? In Acts 17, Paul starts at the beginning. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he himself gives life to all mankind and breath and everything. And he determined man's allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place so that this. This is why he made it. This is why he upholds it by the word of his power This is why you were born to the parents you were born to in the hometown city that you hail from so that they should seek God. The reason I made this world and placed you in it is so that you will seek God and that you will find him most preeminently through his son Jesus. When Jesus comes, he doesn't come as a spirit. He doesn't come as a ghost. He doesn't come as an angel. He comes as a physical man, a being who walks on this earth and creation testifies to him. On the first day, God created light and Jesus says to us, I am the light of the world. 
On the second day, God made heaven and Jesus came proclaiming, I am telling you about the kingdom of heaven. On day three, God made vegetation and Jesus says to us, I am the true vine from which you will find all nourishment and life and health. On the fourth day, God created the sun and Revelation chapter one says that when you meet Jesus and see him, his face will be like watching the noonday sun. On the fifth day, God made the fish in the sea. And Jesus said, as Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish, so I will spend three days buried in death. On the sixth day, God created animals. And Jesus comes to us saying, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I am the Lion of Judah who will conquer. God has placed us in this theater of his glory the heavens resound with his majesty so that wherever we are born wherever we hail from we will turn and seek God and find him because he is not far from each of us and he has sent his son Jesus to know him the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever Let's pray together. Let us not miss this, Lord. This is why we have this useful, orderly, intentional beauty surrounding us. So that we might see you and know you and celebrate you as the one true and reigning God. Do that in our midst and in our city, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.